Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome everybody to tonight's Sydney Ideas event, uh, which has proposed the question, is there anything wrong with medicinal cannabis? Uh, the first person to attempt an answer of sorts to that question is Dr. Mark Ware. Uh, Dr. Ware is an associate professor in family medicine and anaesthesia at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. He's also a specialist in pain medicine, which he's worked in for some 20 years. Um, Dr. Ware has served as vice chair of the Federal Task Force on the Legalisation and Regulation of Cannabis in Canada, uh, where cannabis is currently entirely legal for all purposes. Um, and he's also a recognised leader in global medical cannabis research. Uh, so Dr. Ware is currently Chief Medical Officer at Canopy Growth Corporation, one of, if not the leading cannabis companies in the world. So please welcome uh, Dr. Mark Ware to the stage. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening, everyone. Thanks for the warm welcome. Thanks to the University of Sydney, Sydney Ideas. Thanks to the Lambert Initiative. And thank you to all of you for your interest. Um, thanks also for posing such an easy question to answer. I, I sat on the flight sort of thinking about how I was going to structure my answers. And it's really kind of posed a very interesting question. Is there anything wrong with medicinal cannabis? Um, I don't know how I'm going to answer it. I don't know if I'll be able to answer it. Um, I hope that the panel discussion will be a great opportunity for us to explore some of the questions that I'm going to throw out in the first 20 minutes and, and perhaps just stimulate your thinking as to uh, what it is that you may think is wrong or is not wrong with medicinal cannabis. Um, I, th I suspect that this is my top 10 list. I suspect that if I went around the room and asked you all to tell me what you think is wrong with medicinal cannabis, it would probably be one of these things. And I think there'll be an opportunity later on to see if there's anything I missed. But one of the problems is what is medical cannabis or medicinal cannabis? I mean, there's a question. Is it medicinal or medical? Uh, what is it? What are we talking about when we talk about medical cannabis? And that's, uh, that's already a problem. Um, the complexity of the cannabis plant, the complexity of the human being that uses it and the interaction between the plant and the, and the, uh, and the human endogenous cannabinoid system makes it very challenging, makes it a problem for us. The lack of data, this is probably, if you had to rank these, probably the top thing for most health professionals is the problem with medicinal cannabis, we don't know enough about it. So that's one problem. Um, measurement. How do you measure how much someone's using when they use cannabis? And I'll come back to this in, in talking about clinical trials as well as epidemiological research, but I, it, I put it to you that this is a real challenge for us. Um, lack of education, we don't know enough about it. Uh, events like these go some way towards advancing the discussion, but I think it's something to remember. The stigma associated with cannabis is a big problem. Uh, I, I think probably if I had to say more than the stigma, the smell of cannabis, is a huge problem. It's, it's so distinctive. We know what it smells like. You instantly recognize it. I think if cannabis didn't smell, it wouldn't be as big a problem. Just because you wouldn't know people were doing it. You sit next to somebody who's been smoking cannabis, you instantly form a judgment. It's a perception. Anyway, I leave that hanging. Method of delivery. 
Uh, it's not a smoked drug is a medicine. Is that something we can honestly condone? Can we really think of something which is used as a smoke product? So I think thinking of the challenges of how we use it is a, is a, is a problem. Um, for some people, the over-enthusiastic uh, industry that's sprung up around cannabis is a problem. Um, and I've just come from a, a, a session and listening to the investors and the, the pitches and the hype around the value of the cannabis market and so on. That's some, for some of us a problem as well. For some people, it's an opportunity. Um, another problem, it's a front for legalization. Oh, it's not really about medical use. It's just about legalizing. And that's what, you know, that look at Canada. We had it medically 20 years ago. Now we've just legalized it. That's what's going to happen in Australia, and everyone gets worried about that. So that's a problem for medical cannabis. And ultimately, for a lot of people, the potential harms of cannabis outweigh the benefits. And that's a problem. How can we have a, a drug where there's a potential harm which is greater than the benefits? So let me try and tackle each one of these things in, in a very short span of time. Uh, we've run medical education programs in Canada that span two or three days. So I'm going to do in 20 minutes what we've often tried to do in, in two or three days. So the definition, um, I think, is a, is a real issue. Anybody that's under the age of 40 probably has no idea what Encyclopedia Britannica is. But when I was growing up, the Encyclopedia Britannica was the font of all knowledge. Now, of course, it's Google or Wikipedia or something like that. But when I was a kid, Encyclopedia... So when they asked me to write a definition of medical cannabis, I was thrilled. I thought this was the best thing. So it took me a long time, and so it still appears somewhere in the encyclopedia. But what I thought, and when I think about medical cannabis, it's this. It's the, it's the use of cannabis, which in many ways is the same as what's used recreationally. The, it's the plant and the material, the buds, the flowers. It's the same stuff. But it's the way it's used. More accurately, in the way I tried to define it, was that medical cannabis is being used under medical supervision with an established diagnosis in conjunction with or considering other approaches, pharmacological or non-pharmacological, with the goal of reaching a pre-specified outcome. If somebody comes to me saying they use cannabis to help manage their chronic neuropathic pain, they've tried other therapies and we together work through a program of trying and looking at all their other medications, we decide we'll, we'll consider using it legally, but let's see if we can use it to reduce your other medications and increase your functionality. I think that satisfies my definition of medical use of cannabis or medical cannabis. And I think there are a lot of people who self-medicate, who don't inform their physicians, and I question whether that's truly medical. We need to have that interaction with a clinician to be able to call it medical cannabis. And the complexity is where the story gets really challenging. We've, we've gone a long way to understanding now, and more now in the last 20 years than we've ever done before, is knowing what's in the plant itself. And this is where it gets complex. Like the numbers keep going up, 130, 140 cannabinoids in the product, uh, about 450 terpenes and flavonoids that give it that characteristic smell. Uh, we've got people who've now cloned the genome, and we can understand how these products are made. We understand differences in strains that have different ratios. That's highly complex. It's not, we're not dealing with one drug, and the typical sort of physician is used to dealing and prescribing a medicine that is a specific compound for a specific indication. This is a hugely complex mix of compounds. The big ones, of course, te te tetrahydrocannabinol and cannabidiol, you can see they're very similar. If you look at the molecules, if you're a pharmacologist in any way, the molecules are very similar in shape. There's just one tiny difference, and if you're bored, spot the difference. Um, 
And that's the challenge between THC, which is a highly psychoactive compound, binds to specialized receptors in the brain, um, and cannabidiol, which has a completely different pharmacology, in spite of a very simple change, totally different effect. Very different uh, receptor profile um, and different clinical response. Uh, and then you can multiply that by the other 100 compounds that are in the plant, some of which we don't have no idea yet how they operate. Makes it very confusing for a, a simple clinical decision to be made. Cannabis is not just one thing. It's a, it's a hugely complex um, and of course, the mode of administration is complex. This is data from Washington State, where they legalized cannabis a couple of years ago. Um, and you can see over time that the range of different products, so the flower is the sort of the, the new way of calling the, the bud or the, the, the actual herbal product. But look, concentrates, pre-rolled cigarettes, edibles, vaporized, infused products. And this is increasing. We're seeing this in Canada already. There's a huge range of different ways to consume cannabis now. And it's challenging in that complexity. And then there's the, the human being, the, the receptor for, for cannabinoids and the, the person who's using it. And how does this interact with our bodies? We know now that we have a very robust and a very important system of receptors called the cannabinoid receptors, which are unique to cannabinoid compounds. And they bind to and are acted upon by special cannabinoid molecules that our body makes close to the receptors that are used to balance nerve signaling, used to balance immune function. Um, and we're beginning, and this is one of, the, I think, one of the most exciting areas of neuroscience. And it's not just the cannabinoid people who think it's exciting. This is, this is emerging as one of the most important controlling mechanisms for mood, memory, appetite, pain, um, a huge number of, of normal physiological processes. Uh, this just shows you the brain expression. CB1 is highly expressed in all of our brains. We have a, a dense expression of this very important receptor, and it's clearly doing something important. Even if you don't use cannabis, you've got your own system that's, that's using it and controlling your, your thoughts and your memory and so on. But it's complex. There are genotype differences. There are different expression patterns. There are different ways that it binds. Some people, cannabis seems to make them more anxious. For some people, it seems to reduce anxiety. We don't fully understand yet why there are such individual differences in the way people respond to cannabinoids. But it adds to the complexity of the whole story. Evidence. The, 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 the classical clinical trial is the gold standard for proof that a substance is effective in treating a condition. Um, of course, you go above the clinical trial, you get the systematic review of clinical trials. And there have been a series in the last five years of, of systematic reviews. And I'm going to focus on pain because this is the area that I'm most interested in. And it's the area that's been most studied. Uh, but a couple of years ago, a, a systematic review of cannabinoids for medical use was published followed by a Cochrane systematic review uh, looking at chronic pain. Uh, a couple of, uh, that was about a year ago. Uh, the National Academy of Sciences, uh, Engineering and Medicine in the US produced a report which also contained a systematic review. Uh, we had the pain, this just came out last uh, couple of weeks ago. These are some uh, Australian researchers looking at the um, not a systematic review meta-analysis of, of clinical trials for cannabis for non-cancer pain. I, I've counted at least 10 systematic reviews. So it didn't surprise me when, lo and behold, we have a systematic review of systematic reviews. 
which is off the charts when it comes to evidence-based. This is now the pinnacle of evidence. So, so what do these guys find? find? Uh, my first reaction is, okay, can we please stop doing frickin' systematic reviews? We, we get it. You know, we know that there's a limited amount of information. I'll show you sort of the, the challenges. What we need is people to start doing actual trials, really doing studies properly conducted. It's, what's fascinating when you look at these systematic reviews is how different they all get to the diff different conclusions. Uh, they all find something slightly different. And you'd think that if a group of scientists doing the same methodology looked at the same data, you'd think that they would all come up with the same thing. But it's amazing how different they are. I don't have time to go into it. Um, but the challenge, um, as hopefully the next slide will show you, so, and this is true for most areas. Chronic pain has been the most widely studied, but this is the, 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 these are the sort of typical challenges that you'll see with any clinical review. Um, low quality studies. So they're, they're poor quality in terms of blinding and multiple ways that you measure the quality of trials. They're small, typically under 50 patients. Um, and interestingly, I didn't know this until I read some of these reviews, but interestingly, often small trials are more likely to be positive than larger ones. So that tends to be sort of introduce a level of bias. Um, but I can tell you as somebody who has done some of these trials, when you're looking for funding, you get told to do pilot studies before they let you do big trials. So a lot of these were proof of concept pilot studies. They were never intended to be the final definitive answer. We, we conducted a lot of these pilot studies, so they end, they end up being small. Um, you can't say much about an efficacy uh, long-term if you're only doing a study that lasts two to four weeks. Uh, so, you know, the, the critics will say we need studies that go out for eight weeks, 12 weeks, a longer six months, or 12 months. They typically lump chronic pain together, and anybody who knows anything about chronic pain knows that it's a huge, complex field, that there are different types of pain, no, neuropathic, nociceptive, fibromyalgia, arthritis, they're all slightly different, but they tend to lump everything together when they do these reviews. And similarly with cannabinoids, they lump together pharmaceutical cannabinoids, synthetic cannabinoids, uh, herbal cannabis, smoked cannabis, vape, they all put them all together, and you could argue that teasing this apart would be really important if you're trying to understand whether these drugs are effective or not. And it's quite clear when you dig into the literature that there are trials that were done that got, never got published, and they tend to be negative. So how do you include those studies? And just if you only publish the positive ones, you get a skewed picture of how effective cannabinoids are. And then because they're short, because they're small, you get very poor assessment of safety. It's hard to say anything about long-term safety when you've only studied it for short periods of time. So these are the sort of classical criticisms of the current state of cannabis clinical trials literature. So we need to address this. And this is, you know, I, I think if I was to leave you with one thing, this is what's wrong with medicinal cannabis. This, this is how we're building our evidence base. Measuring cannabis use is another challenge. And when you read the safety literature and you read epidemiological studies, and they say, you know, they measure cannabis use in different ways. Have you ever used cannabis in the past year? Have you used it in the past month? Have you used it in the past week? You used uh, cannabis only at night, during the day, more than once a day. Multiple ways of measuring frequency of use, but very challenging to measure the quantity of use. Was it a gram? Was it two grams? Was it a gram of 10% THC? Was it a gram of 20% THC? Really tough to make those kinds of measurements and then to correlate that with the actual risk that you find. And there have been people who have tried. So joint ears, uh, one joint ear, for, you, for those of you who don't know, if you smoke one joint every day for a year, that's you've had one joint ear of exposure. I don't know if your joints are this big or this big, but that's the definition. 
and this has been used in multiple large-scale assessments of risk for lung cancer. Um, the standard joint unit is another attempt to quantify cannabinoid use and published by some Canadian, uh, an international consortium proposing the standard joint unit. Um, and then my favorite, uh, the daily sessions frequency, age of onset, quantity of cannabis use frequency in inventory by Curry, uh, Carrie Cutler and her colleagues um, looks at ways that you can measure. So it actually quantifies it. So it looks at the amount of cannabis compared to a, a coin. So you can sort of sense how much it is. The lovely thing about this is that the way you say the, uh, the, the, the inventory is the de you questionnaire. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is really charming, tongue-in-cheek way of saying how difficult it is to do clinical measurement. Just administered the FACU questionnaire. I like saying it because otherwise I can't. So measuring it is tough. And then, so, and I'm, I'm convinced that when I've, t I've spoken to physicians and I've done these presentations and talks for a long time, and I sometimes meet clinicians who I think, I, I didn't think, don't think it would really matter how much evidence I threw. I could show clinical trials that I was blue in the face. And I think for some people, they just cannot really get to the bottom of idea that cannabis has medical value. Uh, and this study was done in Colorado a few years ago, and I think it's really important to, to look at what th these physicians, they were family docs, said. So the, 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 the survey was looking at the decision whether or not to recommend medical marijuana to a patient. And they asked the doctors, what, what factors do you use when you're making the decision? If you're seeing a patient in your clinic and you're trying to decide, should I or should I not authorize marijuana for this patient? The most important reason that they said was their deciding factor was that not the medical literature or their conversations with colleagues or the media, it was their experience with patients that was the primary driver which if you dive into it is really interesting. Whether you, if you work in a clinic and you see people who are trying to use cannabis and experiencing benefit, you're more likely to use it as a potential therapy. But if you work in an environment where you see the harms associated with cannabis, if you're working in an addictions unit or a first episode psychosis unit, and you see the harms associated, you're less likely and much more likely not to recommend cannabis because you don't see the medical value. It's that experience that you have with cannabis and medical use that drives the decision whether or not you're going to do that um, and less about the education. And I think this is something really important. I have a feeling also that physicians' personal experience in their own families, in their own personal use history, in their, if you've had kids that have problems with cannabis, I think this colors our perception enormously, way more, I think, than we're willing to realize and more than perhaps the evidence base is, is, is going to uh, override. So it's an important thing, and maybe all of you have your perspectives and your experiences with cannabis that bring you to help you answer that question, what's wrong with medical cannabis? Um, in Canada, we have a huge challenge. The Canadian Medical Association has never, in 20 years, fully appreciated that cannabis has medical value because of the lack of data, because of the lack of standardization, because it's not an approved because it's not an approved drug and so on. And, and this story came out in April. Doctors Group wants to scrap the medical cannabis program. They've been saying this for years. This was the story. What I liked about this story, or what's concerned me about this story, was the image that was used along with it. Now, this is a story about medical cannabis users. But look at the picture that ran on CBC's website. This is a young, attractive woman using a, what looks like a high-end $200 hand-blown glass pipe. 
She's about to play on her iPad a little game of something. She's drinking fresh-pressed organic apple juice. She's in an upper-middle-class kitchen with, st- with a nice marble thing. This is the image. So if you're thinking medical cannabis, and that's the picture that you're seeing, of course you're thinking, well, that's not medical cannabis use. This is a young girl getting stoned. This isn't medical cannabis. But th- th- so the message here is the role the media plays in shaping our impressions. We're governed by this all the time. And and people are using this. And having spent time with political task forces and realizing how politicians use the media to shape messages, how companies use the media, it's an amazingly powerful tool. And I think we need to be very cognizant that most of us know what we know about cannabis from what we've read in the media. And that's an important shaper. I talked a little bit about modes of administration. These are two medical devices, and I have no stake in these companies, but uh, these are two approved, licensed medical devices in Canada for the vaporization of cannabis. And and the idea that you have to smoke cannabis to get its medical effects is now completely debunked. There are many different ways of administering cannabis that doesn't involve smoking. So we can kind of move away from this idea. These are very effective devices. We've used them in clinical trials. We've published the state. You can standardize the dose and the administration reasonably effectively using vaporization. And this is data from the Canadian uh, sales of cannabis products. And if you, what's really interesting is back in 2014, the Canadian government allowed companies to grow cannabis and produce oils from the flower. So you could grow, harvest the dried flower, and you could extract oils from those and put them into a vehicle. And patients could administer these oils as a liquid, either in food or as in a dropper or more recently in gel caps. So what looks like a typical sort of capsule of medicine in, a, in an oil. But once those oils were made available, look at the sale of flour, which is in light green, and then the sale of oil. And around 2017, middle of 2017, the sale of oil began to overwhelm the sale of flour. And this actually was really interesting for the companies that were making it because they weren't really expecting oil sales to be this popular. But it's continued, and this, con- this graph continues to, to show the oil sales are challenging the companies. And I think this gets to this question of patients using cannabis to get stoned. Um, I think when they use oils, they don't get the same kind of euphoric effect. It's a slow onset, it's very gradual, um, and there's very little euphoria associated with that rapid onset that you get when you smoke or vaporize. So I think this picture tells a story as well about the kind of people using cannabis medicines. The industry is having orgasms over these kinds of slides. 25-year projections of billions of dollars. I I took this off the internet this morning. I didn't even check the source. It was one of dozens of graphs. I I saw at least 10 of these today at the the conference down the road. You know, projecting 22, 31% interest. They're they're all going crazy. And I think the role of industry right now is really interesting, really challenging, because they're jumping on this and they're thinking, this is a huge market. And I heard at the opening presentation yesterday somebody say, the market in, Canada, in Australia is a huge opportunity, you know, millions of users. Uh, we capture so much of this mark, total addressable market was a phrase that I heard. You know, millions of Australians uh, using cannabis. Um, this represents you know, billions in revenue. I've been to meetings where I see millions of Australian cannabis users seen as an incredible problem 
because of those users, and for many of them, they use it quite safely and harmlessly, but there are a number of those who have problems with cannabis use, who are going to experience mental health issues, who are going to experience dependency, cannabis use disorder, harms associated with use, and we have to recognize that that's a problem. If you have a large market, you're going to have a large number of people who are also having problems. And I don't think the industry is recognizing its role yet in minimizing some of those potential harms. So that's a challenge. We have to balance between the industry getting excited about this new market and the possible public health impacts that that market has. The opportunity at least to address it and identify it. Just to quickly tell you where we are in Canada, there are 132 companies licensed to grow cannabis for medical purposes. Um, there are 330,000 patients registered, and this has grown over the course of the last 20 years. There are about 16,000 physicians who have written at least one authorization for patients using medical cannabis. So this is a, a fairly mature, fairly large program that's continuing to evolve, and they can authorize flower oils and gel caps. Um, the last thing I'm going to say is about harms and, and the, the possibility that cannabis causes harm. And I think this is something impossible to, to avoid. But what I want to leave you with is this sense of uncertainty. And it's true with the benefits. You, know, you see those systematic reviews showing that cannabis is weakly potentially useful for neuropathic pain. The uncertainty in medical cannabis, in harms with cannabis, is also important to recognize. So I like to tell this story because on one day in March 2017, March the 9th, this paper came out from the American College of Cardiology, and it was all over the news in Canada for, for the day, showing that cannabis use was associated with um, significant cardiovascular risk, stroke, heart failure, after accounting for demographic factors, smoking, alcohol, and so on. So this was a powerful story. It went all over the news, and I was got to my office, and about midday, my PubMed search engine pinged, and I had a new paper that came up. This one. Cumulative Lifetime Marijuana Use and Cardiovascular Disease, Coronary Artery Risk Development, published, not a conference presentation, a published journal, very nice publication, and it concluded that neither lifetime nor recent use of marijuana was associated with cardiovascular disease. This is on the same day. Two completely different findings from two large, well-respected clinical research organizations. And this reflects, and this is true in many areas, when you look at data on cannabis use and lung cancer, cannabis use and cognitive function, cannabis use and psychosis, these contradictions come up. People and advocates for cannabis will pull one side of data. People who think cannabis is not something that's safe will pull the other side. And when you actually try to combine these and do these meta-analyses, you end up with very conflicting results. And this uncertainty gives rise to a real problem because it's hard for me as a physician to tell my patient what are some of the risks if you use medical cannabis when the risks aren't really very clear. So how are we going to fix this? What's wrong? How do we fix it? So I came up with this kind of cute thing. We have to care. We have to collaborate. And with collaboration, I mean patients talking to doctors, doctors talking to researchers and academics. We need industry to be involved in this. We need policymakers to be involved. We need media to be involved. Everybody has a stake in this, so we have to work together. It's the only way we're going to get through all of this. We need access to cannabis products. It might sound stupid, but in order to study cannabis, you have to give it to people, and then they tell you what happens when they use it. So we need access to it, and patients are clamoring for access, and this is clearly a high problem is how do we deliver cannabis safely? 
how do we study it? We need research. We need proper, well-designed clinical trials. We need long-term safety studies of people who are using it, and that's going to be the only way we get to answers. And finally, we need education. We need to talk about it. We need to share it. Opportunities like this venue are a great place to do that. Um, so I'm going to stop there. Thank you for letting me at least throw out some of the things that I think are wrong with medical cannabis. I hope I'm also telling you some of the things I think that could be fixed to help it make it right. Um, and I look forward to a, a, a useful discussion with the panel. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Mark Ware. Um, now I'd like to welcome to the stage our panellists to continue that fascinating discussion that Mark has kicked off. Uh, so firstly, I'd like to welcome Teresa Nicoletti. Teresa is a partner with Mills Oakley. Um, she's both a lawyer and a scientist with vast negotiating <clears throat> experience negotiating complex matters with pharmaceutical companies and also uh, arguing on behalf of patients who would like to get access to um, cannabis for medical purposes. So uh, Teresa uh, will have a fascinating contribution to make. Uh, we've also got adjunct Professor John Skerritt, who's Deputy Secretary for Health Products Regulation. Uh, Professor Skerritt has direct responsibility for the Therapeutic Goods Administration and the Office of Drug Control. Uh, so his, his work is key to the regulation of access to cannabis and cannabinoid products uh, in, in Australia. Uh, he don't make the rules though, so uh, we'll be interested uh, in hearing a certain part of the perspective, but perhaps not, not all of the perspective. Um, Lucy Haslam is the Executive Director and Co-Founder for United in Compassion. Uh, in that role that Lucy's been in since 2013, she has spearheaded the movement to reintroduce medicinal cannabis into Australia. Lucy witnessed firsthand the dramatic relief that her son Dan, who had stage 4 bowel cancer, gained from using medicinal cannabis and together they felt they built the foundations for United in Compassion. So thanks Lucy for Thank joining you. the conversation this evening. Uh, and Professor Ian McGregor. So Professor Ian McGregor is here at the University of Sydney and is the head of the Lambert Initiative, which has been uh, responsible for putting on tonight's event. Um, Professor McGregor's primary research areas are in the potential of cannabinoids in treating diseases like epilepsy, cancer, dementia and pain, and he's the academic director of the Lambert Initiative here. So welcome, everybody, and welcome, Mark. <laughs> So I thought that a good starting point uh, for the discussion after Mark's uh, presentation would be to ask uh, John about how access to cannabis is regulated in Australia. So what are the rules relating to getting cannabis, uh, using cannabis for medical purposes in Australia? Okay, thanks, Sasha, and uh, good, e good evening, everyone, and thanks, Mark, for a superb uh, introduction to uh, tonight. So, in early 2016, uh, with bipartisan support, uh, the Parliament uh, passed modifications to the Narcotic Drugs Act that allowed the uh, 
local cultivation and establishment of a medicinal cannabis scheme in Australia. And uh, there were two premises on which the Parliament uh, introduced cannabis, which is a little bit different to, say, the North American system. So, first of all, it was decided, and I, I should explain what, what Sasha meant. I mean, as a public servant, you do what the government of the day basically says. So they set, they set the laws and we implement the system. Uh, and that's a consequence of being in a democracy. They're the ones, if we don't like what they do, we have a chance every three years, and unfortunately sometimes too often we have a chance to do that. But, uh, but, but that's how democracies work. We implement what the government of the day decides. But with both sides of politics, they, uh, it was a unanimous vote when these changes came through. And there were two fundamental principles. Firstly, cannabis is not special and different. It's, a, it's to be treated as a medicine. And, and a prescription medicine, and, and, prescription, and that's in recognition of the potency and activity of uh, some of the main substances in, in, in cannabis. And secondly, in Australia, unlike North America, it's to be available to patients on a doctor's prescription. Now, it was recognised that there's only actually one cannabis product that's a standard-approved medicine that you can get at your corner pharmacy. And so the other products, which is the bulk of them that patients have been accessing to date, have to be uh, got through a special scheme known as the Special Access Scheme, where an application has to go in and with 48 hours an answer comes through. So a lot of the ways that cannabis is regulated as far as access to patients go are based on the fact that uh, it's a prescription medicine. The other thing the government did at the time was set up a scheme for cultivating it and uh, this was essentially an, a local industry setting itself up from, from scratch. And uh, we've now, just in the last few months, in fact, I think it was two months ago next week, the first Australian cultivated commercial cannabis, there was Australian cultivated material used in other trials and things, but the first commercial cannabis that people can buy for medicinal purposes is available in the market. And so we set up uh, under the Government uh, Act, different types of licences to grow the, the stuff commercially, to do research, to identify newer and improved strains, more potent strains, and also to manufacture cannabis into products. Now in Australia, a range of product, there's no limitation on a range of products. It can be oils, it can be uh, bud or flour for vaporising, it can be infusions and so on. Finally, uh, it was recognised that it was going to be, as it was, a year and a half or so until there was Australian material available. And so the government also authorised the importation of uh, material from over 15 companies. And that material is sitting there in locations in Sydney and Melbourne and other major cities in, in appropriately controlled conditions. So that uh, when a, when a uh, permission is given and a prescription, it can be dispatched within, within a couple of days. So, so that's the system as we've got it. Uh, I think, and it's hard because, adding up all the numbers is hard because there's some patients with multiple sclerosis who get it from a standard prescription. There's a majority of patients who get it through one of a number of these special access or authorised prescriber schemes. But we just uh, hit uh, 2,000 uh, patients, uh, I think, a week or two ago. There's no limits on the numbers, there's no limits to the specified conditions, each one's looked at on its merits and I'm happy to talk more about the broad range of conditions that have been approved, everything from palliative care to epilepsy to post-traumatic stress disorder and so forth. 
And really, the limiting factor, why is it 2,000 and not 20,000? It comes down to the doctor-patient discussion and the doctor's decision to, yes, that's appropriate for you, and to uh, put in the submission for the prescription. Uh, there's no cap to the number of, of prescriptions. What we have seen, however, is the numbers have very significantly increased. I think we've increased by five or 600 just in the last eight or nine weeks. So we are on a very significant takeoff now after a relatively slow start. Thanks very much, John Skerritt. Um, now, <coughs> I'd like to ask uh, Teresa and, and Lucy, but we might start with uh, Teresa. Um, so John says that the, the special access scheme uh, means that if somebody uh, feels that they're a candidate, that they'd, they'd like to access uh, cannabis to help with a medical condition and their GP agrees with them, uh, it's just a matter of their GP applying uh, for access to the medication. Approval can be given within 48 hours and the medicine uh, accessed and dispatched. Uh, is that your experience? Is it, is it, is it that easy? Um, that's, that hasn't been my experience with the, the patients that, that we have provided some pro bono legal support to. Um, and and I, I think the problem is the layers of regulation that, that patients have to go through. Um, uh, tr the traditional special access scheme and authorised prescri prescriber scheme has just operated at the federal level with the TGA providing approval for, for um, doctors to be able to access a drug under one of these schemes. Um, the, the complication seems to be more at the state la layer of regulation. So I'd, I think people need to know that, that this process is evolving. When it first started um, and access was, was first introduced under the Special Access Scheme or Authorised Prescriber Scheme, it was very slow at the federal level as well. Um, that process has improved substantially. The states, are, some of the states are coming online and it has improved a bit, but it's still very slow. If, if I can point to one criticism, it's, it's the concern about the level of interference between the doctor-patient relationship. Um, and, and some of the states in particular asking um, questions of doctors that I think really interferes with that relationship. And, and if I can just use an example, just today I had a call from one of the, the patients I'm assisting um, and she actually said she had approval at the federal level um, and she also received a letter from the State Department saying that, that uh, because the drug was being used under Category A that the, the state had decided that she didn't need approval there. But then the next day... The so Category A? Under Category A. So yeah. what's that? So, sorry, Category A is essentially if you're deemed to have a life-threatening condition, uh, you can get much faster access and the process is just to, to send a notification to the TGA that, that you're going to, to use the product. Um, the, the, the State Health Department contacted the doctor and actually said to the doctor that um, the buck stopped with him and he needed, needed to be very careful <coughs> about prescribing this product to the patient um, and um, that the, the, the product contained THC and it would cause dependence in the patient and he needed to be really concerned about that. Now this was a bureaucrat <coughs> telling a doctor what they should be doing. 
that's where I think regulation oversteps the mark. So I think that there's still a lot of improvement that needs to happen in the, the regulatory process. I've always been an advocate of the TGA's approval process. I think it's world class. I don't think we need to duplicate that layer of regulation at the state level, particularly when we have a situation where the TGA has approved access but then the state refuses, and that is happening. Thanks. So just, again, just at a very basic level, if I go to the doctor, my doctor thinks I should, that I'm a candidate, that I'm, a, that I'm indicated for using um, medical cannabis, what then happens? So the doctor can submit either an application for access under the special access scheme or under the authorised prescriber scheme. There are two schemes. The, under the authorised prescriber scheme, the doctor has to actually get approval from either an ethics committee or endorsement from a specialist college. And once they obtain that, then, then it's essentially advising the TGA of that approval and the TGA will usually give an authorisation after that point. Under the special access scheme, an application is submitted by the doctor to the TGA and it's evaluated by the, the clinical section of the TGA um, that deals with those types of applications. But then after that is approved, then you have to then go to your state health department and get approval from the state health department. So it's just Sorry, no. double John, layer of John regulation. John says no. Uh, no. Uh, since, uh, with the exception of Tasmania, it's a simultaneous submission process it, it to, to both the Commonwealth and all the states, and it's online. Well, it, it actually isn't, because that, that's what it's supposed to be in practice, but that's, that's not what is actually happening. And I can tell you that from my experience today. Well, it can be submitted simultaneously. Now, I'm not saying... A state can, of course... It doesn't mean that the state will always agree with us. Exactly. Uh, as you've heard today. But exactly. The That's but, the process. But the, sim but the submission is simultaneous and the decision is made within 48 hours. And I applaud the, the intent to achieve that, John, but what I'm seeing is that it's not happening. Well, okay. as you know, since, since uh, I guess, uh, Europeans first landed in Australia... The Commonwealth has been trying to control the states. Uh, uh, state, yeah. states, still have, states still have the ability to make decisions. So Tasmania has a decision that only seven people in the whole state will get medicinal cannabis. Now, my view as to whether that's sensible or stupid is irrelevant because the state of Tasmania has that power. So there is only so far the Commonwealth can go to states. But uh, in this state where we are now, uh, there is total alignment except if... The, the doctor has a history of prescribing illegal substances and therefore there's some grey area prescribing issues. So New South Wales will always align with, with uh, the Commonwealth. But just right. to use Sydney as an example. Okay, so it's fair to say then, it's fair to say then that um, this is there's obviously complexity in the federal state uh, relationship. Oh, and, yeah. it's, and it's not it's not a simple matter then of the GP ringing up making a phone application, it being approved on the phone and writing out a script, obviously no. a little bit more complex. No, it's online and that. with 48 hours, unless if the state but, raises But you also a need to have ethics committee approval. No, 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 there's two alternative channels. There's the online 48-hour model if it's individual patients, or if you're, say, a doctor who's seeing people with chronic pain, you apply to become an authorised prescriber. Yes, it's got to go through your hospital committee. Once you have that, 
you can do five or five patients. Oh, okay, patients. so you, to become an authorised... Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, so we, sitting here in this panel, we have the leading experts in Australia, really, on um, the use and prescription of cannabinoids for medical purposes, and there's disagreement uh, amongst this group um, about, you know, how those processes work. And so I'd like to ask uh, Professor McGregor, who has uh, recently led a research study through the Lambert initiative on GPs' uh, attitudes and knowledge about use and prescribing of uh, cannabinoids for medical purposes. So what do Australian GPs um, think about prescribing cannabis and what has been uh, their, their reaction? Yeah, I'd like to thank Mark for his splendid address and it's great to see him. I'd also like to thank the other panellists for coming to our university this evening. So, um, yeah, I'm academic director of the Lambert Initiative, and we were set up about three years ago with the very large, unprecedented donation from the Lambert family to study medicinal cannabis. And we do a lot of very basic research with cells and mice and models of disease, and we do a bit of clinical trial work. We have uh, volunteers vaporizing cannabis, if you want to be in one of our studies. Uh, but we also do a lot of work in the community. And that um, varies. So, uh, one thing that we do quite a lot of, which is almost hidden, is to help people who are in the criminal justice system. And there are people, even in the auditorium tonight, who I know who have been recently up on charges. Um, they've had to use medicinal cannabis products because they've reached the end of the line in terms of what conventional medicine can offer them. And I think we have to recognize that our uh, society is not really providing uh, rational and coherent alternatives to these people with the current legislation, and that concerns uh, us at the Lambert Initiative a, a great deal. We also have more than 60,000 Australians who are prosecuted or arrested for cannabis offenses every year, so let's not pretend that the criminal justice system has left the building when it comes to cannabis just because we've had some legislative change. And that concerns me very much. Another concern has been that in the early days of medicinal cannabis in Australia, I'm talking about two or three years ago, it seemed like the specialist colleges in the AMA were really running the show in terms of commentary on medicinal cannabis. And we had a lot of scepticism coming from the AMA. We had a paper coming from the Royal College of Physicians, which actually contained some major factual inaccuracies that said that cannabis was no good for chronic pain while citing uh, studies that showed that it was. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we had a lot of concerns about the way the evidence was being presented, particularly by some of the specialist colleges. And we thought, well, who's on the front line of medicine? And obviously it's the GPs. Isn't it about time that we spoke to them? So we conducted a survey last year of 640 Australian GPs, and it was quite wide-ranging. Uh, we asked them their, their basic attitudes towards medicinal cannabis. We asked them how much they knew about medicinal cannabis, how many patients were asking them about medicinal cannabis, and if they thought medicinal cannabis would be useful for a whole range of conditions. And uh, in some ways, we were quite surprised because the uh, prevailing scepticism from the specialist colleges led us to believe that the GPs themselves would be very sceptical, but actually a majority were in favour of uh, medicinal cannabis and they believed that it could have positive effects in some of their patients. 
Less than 10% of the GPs felt they'd been educated about medicinal cannabis and knew how to have a mature conversation with their patients. And in some ways, it's the patients educating their doctors about medicinal cannabis. And that resonates with what Mark said earlier about uh, patient need often driving doctor belief as to the efficacy of, of cannabis. There was a great thirst for knowledge. The majority would like to prescribe medicinal cannabis if it were available for them to prescribe. And this is one of the issues that we have with the current legislative system. It seems that it's really a specialist-led model. Uh, GPs have to really work in conjunction with specialists in order to get their patients access to medicinal cannabis. That's our understanding, at least. And finding a specialist who's sympathetic is often a great deal of a challenge. I mean, we have the College of uh, Anesthetists who are very skeptical about medicinal cannabis. and. A lot of pain doctors, pain specialists are very skeptical too when you think they'd be the first to want to try something other than opioids and gabapentinoids, which have all sorts of problems associated with their use. The beliefs about the GPs were really quite refined in that they were very enthusiastic about medicinal cannabis for things like chronic pain, uh, multiple sclerosis, cancer pain in particular, palliative care, areas that are very difficult to treat. But there's a lot of concern about things like depression and anxiety, a lot less enthusiasm for prescribing for psychiatric conditions. So, but generally, the, uh, the vibe, if you like, that we got, where GPs would quite like to give this a go, and there was a lot of commentary we, in our forum when we did the survey, we left room for open-ended comments, and it was quite common for the GPs to say, well, I'm allowed to prescribe opioids and benzos, FFS, so why not medicinal cannabis? <laughs> They're very risque, this cannabis mob, aren't they? <laughs> um, so, Lucy, I think it might be a good opportunity um, for you to talk to us a little bit about your experiences um, with use and access of, of cannabis um, for somebody with a terminal illness and experiencing uh, pain and those sorts of... So what was, what was your experience and, and what's your experience <coughs> since that time been? Okay, so my, my background was in nursing, so I have a good understanding, I think, of the many potential uses and, and indeed the suffering of people, you know, in, in palliative situations um, with intractable epilepsy, with um, severe spinal cord injuries, brain injuries. Um, so I think in many ways I think I've been preparing for the role that I now have as a patient advocate for, for basically the whole of my career and even as a mother. Um, but my first experience um, was completely um, life transforming in that my whole perception about cannabis as being this dangerous gateway drug, um, which is all I'd ever learnt in um, nursing school, um, to see what it did for my dying son was just the most incredible experience I'll ever have. Um, to see a young man who really had no quality of life take a puff on a cigarette, you know, against his better judgment and not wanting to, but with myself encouraging him to do so because I was sick of seeing his suffering and my husband as an ex-drug squad police officer who was sick of seeing his suffering and prepared to challenge our own perceptions and just to, just to see if it would make a difference and then to see the incredible difference that it made to his life. From that minute on, 
we looked at each other in disbelief and said, if this can do this for Dan, this is worth fighting for. And I guess now my role has evolved and, you know, it, there would not be a day go by without patients contacting me. And there, you know, I've, I've sat and I've listened very respectfully to what John has said about how the system has been developed in Australia and I, I'm just confused as hell because my phone does not stop ringing. Patients are desperate. They're looking for answers. They're using cannabis from the black market, mostly with great relief, such as what Dan got. They don't want to be breaking the law. They want to be doing the right thing. They want to be not considered criminals. They want to be under the care of their doctor. And at the moment, as nice as it sounds to listen to this streamlined application um, and a 24-hour turnaround, Bob's your uncle, there you go. It's not working. And, you know, with great respect, John, mm. if you think this is working for the vast majority of patients, you are so absolutely wrong. And if it means that the government has to admit that they've cocked it up massively, then they need to do it because at the moment there are kids with intractable epilepsy that are dying needlessly. There are people that are being locked up for wanting to look after their loved ones. There are people with terminal illness who are in so much pain but who are expected to take a trip from the back of Burke to a major metropolitan area to see a specialist, to get authorisation, to get a drug that they should have been allowed to get under Category A of the Special Access Scheme with a rubber stamp. But... Yeah. <laughs> I can. That, that, John, that is a complete throwaway line to say they can. You make it sound so simple. It is not simple for a patient who needs access to medical cannabis in Australia. The simple, the, the quicker, easier, more affordable access the way to access it is through the black market, and I think that is absolutely disgusting. So why are their, do why are their doctors not applying? From the minute this, this passed into legislation, there has been so many barricades and brick walls thrown in. There has been negative messaging to doctors. Why would a doctor want to do something that is so time-consuming now you say it's a, it's a simple process, it's streamlined, it's a 24-hour turnaround. Well, I mean, we, we have gotten to a much better place than we were two and a half years ago, because that's how long it's been, but we are nowhere near where it should be. We have such a long way to go. The negative messaging from doctors to doctors at every level, at, there, there's been so many hurdles, why would they want to try? And now I get to the point where I have doctors, I have patients contacting me saying, Lucy, we saw the palliative care specialist last week. They said they can do no more. They recommended that we call you. Can you help us find a supplier? Mm. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous that we have specialists who feel it is above and beyond yeah. them and it is better to send their patient to the black market. So if you can't admit that the system is failing patients, then we have a, a really, really big problem. Yeah, we do. And we do have a really, really big problem and we have an election coming up. So we need to make this an issue okay. um, for our politicians. Yeah. So, so
so, so it, there, there may be a regulatory issue, so that's obviously going to be part of the picture when we look at barriers to um, access. But another important part of the picture is going to be convincing people to use the, the structures that are there. Uh, and one of the reasons why doctors are presumably reluctant, um, you know, maybe to push harder, why you get barriers and, and so on, is the sorts of things that Mark uh, was raising. So uh, we've got a poor evidence base for efficacy, according to, uh, according to Mark Ware. Um, you know, we've got small, low-quality studies, anecdotal reports, um, you know, we don't have a sort of a particularly strong evidence base and at the same time we've got evidence for certain harms that are associated with cannabis use too and it's obviously important for physicians to take those things into account as well. So I thought I'd ask uh, Ian to comment on what the current evidence base is, you know, certainly as far as Australian prescribers might be aware of. So what, what's the state of play as far as what we know about efficacy of cannabinoids? Well, I certainly concur with uh, Mark's comments about this extraordinary medical archaeology that's taking place where <laughs> we're digging up the bones of every study we can find to try and work out what it all means rather than running uh, a whole suite of meaningful clinical trials and, and other types of uh, studies that can be done to try and progress the evidence base. And that, that's certainly what we're doing at the Lambert Initiative. It's actually a fascinating medicine cannabis. There's nothing quite like it that I, that I can think of. I mean, you've got these 140 cannabinoids, and we know that there's therapeutic effects um, arising from perhaps dozens of them, and that's not to even mention the terpenes. And there's very basic questions. Can you pluck one cannabinoid out, and it'll be just as good as the whole orchestra playing? We actually don't know the answer to that question scientifically yet. Somewhere in there, there might be a cure for cancer. Somewhere in there, there might be the most extraordinary pain medication. And that's just the plant itself. There's a, an opportunity to play with the chemistry of the plant as well and generate novel pharmaceuticals from that. The evidence base is actually pretty good for certain conditions. So we have good knowledge around spasticity and MS, for example. The data for pain, much reviewed generally, and I think your, your review, John, would agree that with uh, non-cancer pain, probably reasonable evidence around a 30 to 50% reduction, depending on what studies uh, you look at. And then there's a whole load of really interesting signals for all sorts of uh, conditions that are very common in the community. I, I gave a very exciting talk to the Tourette's Association of Australia, and if you know what Tourette's is, you'd know why it was an exciting talk to give. Uh, but they, you know, that, <laughs> there was a lot of audience heckling, but uh, there we, we, we have a strong signal emerging for THC. I mean, THC tends to be demonized a little bit, but in Tourette's it seems to work a particular magic, but there's only, you know, one or more small studies that have been done. We need more definitive evidence. Um, inflammatory bowel disease, that's a really interesting one too. One small Israeli study, uh, you know, tens of thousands of sufferers in Australia. What do you do with that information? What do you do with that one Israeli study? Do you give cannabis the benefit of the doubt and say, well, we've got one study here, is that enough to let everyone have access? 
or do you want to wait another five or ten years while we amass you know, platinum standard evidence? And, and that's the situation we're in. You name the condition, there's some sort of signal, sometimes just a preclinical rat or cellular study that will say cannabinoids you know, might help for this. It's what we do with that information and whether we go, say, the Canadian route or the German route and, and give doctors the opportunity to prescribe it if they think that it can make a difference? Do we empower our doctors? I mean, a, a quite a famous politician whose name I won't give to you <laughs> said to me, if the patients want it and the doctors want to prescribe it, we should get the hell out of the way. Uh, and mm -hmm. in a way, that, that is simple, but it's interesting advice. So, so what do you think, I mean, perhaps, you know, a couple of you might want to comment on this. I mean, what, what is stopping that sort of regime, that kind of more open regime, actually coming to fruition uh, it, Well, in law, uh, the reason why there's this 48-hour process is that in law, these are not approved medicines. And so we've got about 60,000 applications a year for all sorts of things. There might be a really good, good cancer medicine that's approved in America, but not yet here, or the market's too small here. So there's about 60,000 applications for all sorts of medicines that go through this 48-hour process. Uh, because they're not approved, the idea is that they're checked to see that it actually is the right medicine, manufactured at the right quality, coming from a reputable supplier for an appropriate indication. And uh, as I say, it's a, all countries have these systems for unapproved medicines. It comes down to the fact that in Australia, the government decided it was a medicine to be prescribed on a doctor's prescription, whereas in Canada and the US, it's, it's on what they call an authorisation. It's not actually a prescription medicine in that sense. And that was a decision of our parliament. Now, as Lucy said, there's an election next year. Anything could happen, but uh, our job is to administer the system that is the current law of the land. And so that's why there's this extra uh, step, because it's uh, not, ex with the exception of one product for multiple sclerosis, cannabis products are not approved medicines in Australia. They have to go, we're hoping more will be soon, they have to put in an application with the evidence as, as Ian was talking about. Well, I'm sorry, Mark. If, if I may just qu quickly comment, because it's interesting to hear the dynamic going on on stage and also to hear the mm. reaction. Uh, Canada, I don't want anybody to think that the Canadian model is perfect. It, it evolved over 20 years of legal battles mm. and patients fighting with lawyers to secure access. And this took 20 years from the first challenge in 1997, finally resolved in 99, you know, version one in 2000, version two in 2004, version three, multiple different things. Years spent in courts fighting and the government putting up sort of minimum responses. So th I, I hear that the, the frustration and we went through this for a long period of time. My hope is that that lesson can be learned much more quickly when one is setting up another system from scratch and that there can be with the, the key things were, 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 were access to choice. So patients needed not just to have one. There was, there was a time in Canada when it was sort of a 5% THC. There you go. That's your medical cannabis. And the patient said, well, that's not good enough. So off to court two years later, the government had to open it up. So you need access, you need choice. Um, the, the doctor education bit, I mean, there were times when there were very few physicians willing to authorize. That number has grown slowly, but it's been something which they've gradually become comfortable with over time. Getting education, they're not taught about this system Is in medical school. What, what's the reluctance, if I can 
just ask you to... Not being taught anything about endogenous cannabinoids in the system. I, I think as you heard, it's, it, they, they're told about cannabis, as Lucy was mentioning, as a drug of abuse. They've heard of what everybody else hears. To, the idea that this could be therapeutically useful is something that they have simply haven't been exposed to. And when they are exposed to it, it's because a patient is saying, doctor, I've smoked some cannabis, it made my pain better, will you help me? Mm -hmm. They know more about this than the doctor does. That's not a good, as a doctor, I can tell you, that's not a nice dynamic for the doctor. They get to feel very uncomfortable and that then doctors tend to feel like they should be the ones knowing everything. So that's, that's a problem in the dynamic. Um, and then the, the, the problem is that this m structure of medicine that we have now where it's prescription, prescribing is I'm telling you what to take. The working with a patient and saying, well, let's work together. When I hear these stories of doctors being approached by patients saying, I've got this intractable condition, I've tried everything you've given me, nothing was working, but this is helping. I don't understand how doctors don't go, well, let's work together and figure this out. I don't get why that happens. It, there's something in the mindset of medicine now that is blocking people from doing that. And I wish I knew what it was. Um, it's complex, but they have to learn to go on that journey with the patient. However the regulations are set up, whatever the paperwork, if they did it once, they'll realize that it's actually not the end of the world. They're helping somebody. They'll do it again. And slowly those numbers change. That's what's happened in Canada. Can, can I try and shed a little bit of light on why I think the doctors have some reluctance? And I think the government does have to take some responsibility here for the guidances that the government put out to guide doctors who were feeling unsure. I'd just like to read, just if I might, um, if you can just indulge me. So this is a criticism of the guidances that were put forward by the Australian government to guide doctors in their decision making. Uh, and this is a comment made on Twitter by um, Dr David Caldercott. In just a decade's time, they, the guidances, will be mocked as an example of the abuse of science. They are political designed to arrive at conclusions that suit parties other than patients. The sad reality is that these documents will do nothing, next to nothing, to change the status quo, an illicit market of uncertain provenance accessed by desperate people. They don't tally with the experiences of tens of thousands in Australia, millions worldwide, and so will simply be ignored, even by doctors who choose to educate themselves overseas and online about the actual pros and cons of medical cannabis. This is why doctors are unsure. This is the kind of messaging that they've been given from the top down. And this is why we're here having a, a discussion about is there anything wrong with medical cannabis? And when, when I saw that title for today, I thought, well, you could actually change that question completely. Is there anything wrong with medical cannabis in Australia? And that changes the whole spin on that completely because at this point in time, two and a half years after we embarked on a legal cannabis program, there's a hell of a lot wrong with medical cannabis in Australia. And, and I think it's time we did something about it. So I think this might be a good time to um, throw the questions over to the audience. There's roving mics on either side of the room. I have partial control over who's, who's being called upon. <laughs> so raise your hands and I'll, I'll do my best. Just lady over here. Uh, this is uh, for Mr Skerritt. Um, you've noted 2,000, I think, is it successful applications? One, I'd be interested if they've all passed. But then also, what consultation have you done with doctors who've tried but given up to make applications? 
So uh, we have a... We've actually gone back to individual doctors who have... I mean, you've, you don't know what you don't know. So uh, we only know if a doctor contacts us and says, hey, I've, I've got problems with this. So we have a 1-800 number. We have an email address. The number's uh, there 8 till 5 or 8 till 5.30 or something like that, business hours. Uh, of complete applications where the full information's been given, there, uh, there has not been a complete application uh, rejected since January the 1st, 2016. Uh, there have been some applications that have been incomplete. So if you write a... Because there's so many different forms of... Pro if you wrote medicinal cannabis on a form, it'd go back to the doctor saying, well, whose product? Because in law, you actually have to prescribe one of about 35 products that are available. Can I, can I elaborate on that? Like something, something that I heard today that ties in with that. Um, part of the problem is uh, producers can't advertise their product. They're not allowed to. So those products were, were advertised on, well, were, were nominated on the TGA's website. Office of Drug Control. Office yeah. of Drug Control, excuse me. Office of Drug Control. So if someone wanted to prescribe, mm. they could then go and find a product and, you know, do their research. Those products have now, I've been told, removed um, because I was told that today by um, one of the companies right. who said that they, you know, they would refer doctors to that website to see the products. And when she inquired why those products have been removed, she was told that that would be endorsing the product and the government was not going to be doing that. So how the hell are these doctors who are trying to prescribe for their patient going to find the product when it's not allowed to be advertised and when the government won't even give them the indication that the, of what the products are? Uh, that's not quite true. At least, uh, at least 5 o'clock last Friday, the companies were all listed on the Office of Drug Control website. It is true that in Australia, and again, this is the law of the land, uh, uh, it is illegal to advertise prescription medicine. Who here has travelled to the US? What's the first thing you see when you turn on the television? Ads for prescription medicines. Now... Again, our parliament, through a bill that went through last year, confirmed that they didn't want to advertise prescription medicines of any sort. And for better or worse, medicinal cannabis, because it's a prescription medicine, is caught up on that. So, yes, you can't advertise in Australia brand X medicinal cannabis. And so what the Office of Drug Control did was to put the phone numbers and a URL and a link to the companies that do have products available... But that's as far as they can go in law. It's, it's elite. You can't advertise a particular brand of cancer drug or a particular brand of uh, opiates or whatever. In Australia, it's only the US and New Zealand and Canada, which is a bit of a funny situation, uh, in, in the Western world that allow uh, advertising of prescription medicines. So all other countries, you know, UK, uh, Germany, France, it's illegal to advertise prescription medicines. And that's because cannabis is a prescription medicine, uh, the names of the products aren't able to be gone up on the website. But I would argue that most of us could, within 30 seconds, find an Australian supplier of, 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 of suitable products. The, the company websites are up there on the Office of Drug Control uh, and there are other organisations that will help you find the product. But no, well, it is, it is, illegal, think, to, it is, is a, illegal to advertise yeah. that. And Maybe this is a yeah. new problem mm. that so I can bring to yeah. your attention. Is it not quite as simple then that if you actually have a prescription, you've got all the other hoops have gotten through, you've got a prescription in your hand, 
You, can you just go to your local chemist and not. get some no. Sativax? <laughs> no, no, but what you can for Sativax. A doctor goes onto the Office of Drug Control website, nominates a product, and then uh, makes a call, and I, or, or their pharmacist, and identifies which ones will have it in stock in Sydney or Melbourne. Uh, there's some people who import products specially, but there's over 30 different products sitting at stock in Australia, and now there's, I think, a second or third different combination of THC and CBD so you probably came onto can, the Australian market this week. So you probably can get some. You can, so Sativex is um, the approved... Someone else Sativex is, is a registered medicine, but there's a couple of dozen other ones. Mm. So of the 2,000 patients, 90% have used these other ones, not Sativex. They've used the, uh, so the oils and the tinctures to, and the raw cannabis. Is that well, well, the process has worked for, for 1,800 of them. But, but Lucy says that it's, it's more difficult. So, okay. Mm. All right. Okay. Well, I mean, again, it's sort of it's, mm. this, this really indicates the complexity of, of the situation. Okay, so that's someone up the back with a comment that she uses marijuana for medical purposes and she can get it from her doctor easily. You would be a rarity. Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh -huh. the, the prices vary. There's actually a study out there. The, the, out, the German government reimburses medicinal cannabis. So the same way you go with your prescription and you only pay either $7 or $39 depending on, on whether you're on a concession card. In Australia, there's a committee that recommends to the minister for registered medicines whether or not they can be reimbursed. Uh, I've mentioned that at the moment most cannabis medicines are not reimbursed, uh, are not registered, so therefore they're not eligible for reimbursement. So, good news is the price seems to have come down by 50% over the last year. Now for, now, for kids with epilepsy, the price is extremely high and is a source of some hardship for many parents. It's about $900 a month on average. For people taking THC for pain, <laughs> this study showed the average price was about $380 a month. That's still a lot of money for someone if you're not working and all that. But if you believe that's wrong, lobby the government because the government policy is that medicines are not reimbursed unless they're on the pharmaceutical benefit screen. Don't scream at me. All right, let's have a question <laughs> from the back, yeah. please. Question from the back, thanks. Hi there. Um, I was diagnosed with arthrosis in my spine about five years ago and that led to a chronic pain condition known as fibromyalgia. Mm. I was finally referred to the Sydney Pain Clinic at RPA, which is also the teaching hospital, also works with you guys. I have, was tossed the same drugs that my, my GPs gave me, Cymbalta first, followed by Lyrica, which made me gain 100 million kilos, made me depressed, suicidal, you name it. What else was I put on? Everything. Celebrex. They tossed the same drugs at me. When I asked them about cannabis oil, which I'm now importing illegally from Colorado, thank you very much, they said there's not enough data and no, we will not help you with that. So, over to you. Okay, I, firstly, my daughter suffers from fibromyalgia <coughs> and I know it's a horrible condition. This is the she, pain clinic, they're supposed yeah, to be the no, experts. I, sorry if I can finish. Uh, I suggest you get a second opinion from a different pain clinic. We have approved uh, medicinal cannabis for fibromyalgia. I took a personal interest. I wasn't involved in the approval process. Uh, 
It, but I was very interested to hear that because Sam, my daughter, has suffered from fibromyalgia for 10 years and I, it is an awful condition. So, I think, so, 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 so talk to a second doctor, as we all do. Uh, we're all free to seek a second medical opinion. You know, I, I was told I had to have major surgery on my right shoulder a few years ago, which would have had me in bed for a month. I didn't believe them. I went and got a second opinion. And I just encourage you to do that, uh, as you do for any medical thing. It, there's not a single source of truth here. Get a second opinion. Mr Scarrett, <laughs> I wanted to address a couple of the comments that you mentioned. Mm. So if we go back to what you mentioned, 2016 January is when um, the approvals for the scheme started, is that correct? No, well, the Australian Cultivation Scheme only started at 30th of October, okay. but the law, but I just mentioned that since January 2016, no, there haven't been any rejections okay. of, of complete right. applications. Excellent. So prior to that, I think in um, your introduction, you mentioned something around now there being as of a certain date, very recent, 2,000, 2000 patients. Yeah. And also in the last eight and nine weeks, we've had, um, I wrote it down, five to 600 patients yes. join. So that's about yeah. a 45% increase. It has. My curiosity yeah. is what do you attribute that to? Is oh. it the pricing? Is it doctor education? What is it? Uh, you've almost answered my question. Uh, I think number three is the pricing, and look, it is still, if you're not working, this, or even if you are working, 300 or 900 bucks a month is serious money. I mean, I'm not hiding that, but, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not responsible for price. I am hearing that it's as low as $185 for some Australian cultivated products, and a market will get more competitive as we have more companies here in Australia. So pricing is one. Uh, another one, I think, is... Uh, wider doctor education. But the biggest thing has been this online portal. Now, the fact that you don't have to do separate pieces of paper, the fact that the portal pre-populates the doctor... I mean, doctor's time's limited, everyone's time's limited. This will actually automatically put the doctor's address and everything in, onto the form. You know, it's one of those... Like when you felt your tax, if you've done that on the new form, it's about the only good thing about the tax office. Uh, but you know the new form, it automatically populates all your stuff. Uh, that's really cut down the doctor's time. And uh, what we hear is that uh, that's really being attributed. So we're seeing this very significant takeoff because the online form has been available in New South Wales since March and it's only been available in, the other, in, in most of the other states for the last couple of months. That's when we're Thanks, John. Off. Sorry, I'll just get mm. um, Lucy to comment. Just, just on well. that same idea of the portal, um, I also had a comment today from a, a company who told me that they'd invested a significant amount of money into setting up a portal on their website where um, it did, and I think this was prior to the government doing it, um, they were able to populate it with the, the doctor's information. If he typed in the condition, it would populate it with all the studies and the research that would support that and give evidence. And then the government went and did their website and did the same portal. And now when uh, a doctor uses their website, uh, it comes up with the, the information that uh, you can no longer access via this portal because there is a government portal. But the government portal isn't as good because it doesn't do a lot of the work for the doctor in gathering that evidence and providing that evidence. So who are we trying to help here or who are we trying to impede? If there was an initiative by a private organisation which was actually helping and fast-tracking and encouraging doctors and now all of a sudden 
Um, it's mm. no longer available. What is the purpose uh, in that? I, don't, I haven't heard that this portal isn't available. Uh, that's the first I've heard of it. The government portal is just that. If you're applying to the government, uh, as you have to for any unapproved well, well, medicine, this, this was, uh, this that, that's why the government runs that portal. It's also a joint... Uh, it was jointly agreed between the Commonwealth Health Minister and state health ministers, both Labor and Liberal, in April that there would be such a portal and, uh, and now it's here. So it's the same way when you're approved for driver's licence, you've got to go to the government. Love them or hate them, it's the government who issues licences and permits for things. I just, I just yeah. wonder why you... Uh, this is effectively making it more difficult for the doctor because the private portal gave him far more information, mm -hmm. therefore there was a, a great benefit in t cost savings right. and time savings. And now it's like a backward step and it's okay. kind of... All right, so yeah. there's, there's more complexity there. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Ian. I just wanted to double back to cost because in our experience interacting with consumers, this remains a major problem. I mean, John has some soothing words from the cannabis access report, but we don't know anything about the methodology. It's not specified yeah. in that report. No. It might have been five patients, it might have been 500. It might be old mate down the road said that it's cheaper, so that went into the report. We our experience is that it, it's not really getting much cheaper. When we spoke to the parents of children with paediatric epilepsy who were using illicit products, 60% of them were paying nothing for their illicit oils and tinctures that they were using and rated them as highly effective. The alternate under the current scheme, the official scheme, is to pay something like forty or $50,000 a year. And that is just not an option for most families. Ah. With chronic pain, we're still hearing ten dollars to $20,000 mm. per year. It is such a major disincentive. When we surveyed mm. 1,700 illicit cannabis users who were self-medicating the Australian community in our CAM study, a third of them were paying nothing because they were growing mm. their own. And this is a major obstacle for the official government scheme. Until you come up with some way of subsidising medicinal cannabis, people are going to revert to illicit products of unknown provenance. The one little glint that I heard today at the conference was maybe that the private insurers, the HCFs and the boopers are quite interested because the evidence is starting to tell us if you're on medicinal cannabis, your use of other prescription medications may well go down, and that makes sound economic sense for the private insurers. So that'd be very interesting. But it'd be nice to see the federal government take the initiative and come up with some kind of compassionate mm. scheme to supply this mm. for free. That would be... Mm. Okay, so we've got time for two more questions. So there's one here, and there's a, f and there's a fellow up the back as well. Um, I think one of the major flaws in the system is that a lot of the doctors don't even know anything about cannabis. So is mm. there some kind of plan to educate doctors oh, so yeah. they know more about the medicine and they're more likely to prescribe it for their patients? Anne, would you like to uh, respond to doctor education and what the options yeah, so are I mean, there? Th there's a number of uh, educational programs that are sort of at the, at the seedling stage, if you like. Uh, our friend David Caldecott has one that has uh, gone out four or five times. I know that over in Western Australia, OSCAN have a program, and there's also the National Institute on Complementary Medicine, I think, that run a workshop. Mm. It's kind of early days, and I must say the Lambert Initiative is quite interested in offering education through a more formal University of Sydney structure. And we think that, I mean, there's a lot of postgraduate education for doctors that happens through universities and we're a kind of well-trusted institution and organization for delivering 
Um, so that's certainly something we're looking at. There is a great thirst for knowledge amongst the medical profession, mm. particularly amongst the GPs. They mm. really want to know, and it's incumbent upon us to try and deliver really high-quality educational programs that are very practical as well. I think doctors really want to know the practical details as well as some of the theory, but it's really the how-to, how to deal with this issue that they need to know about. And Mark, how's the experience with doctor education gone in, in Canada? It's been difficult for the same reasons. Uh, I think there's one, there was one sort of avenue that I think needs to be explored, and that is the use of, of non-profit organizations like universities uh, to develop educational programs. There's a big challenge, much like with advertising, is having industry doing the education, because there's a potential bias and a conflict of interest if company X is interested in prescribing more of its medicine and it, is that it the way it always it. goes in it, it is and <laughs> so there are there are barriers put up mm. to prevent industry from unduly influencing yep. the prescribing habits of doctors and that's that's reasonable but it does mean that the industry that wants to inform people about the availability of its products is unable to do so but the nonprofit organizations provide a perfect vehicle so I would very strongly suggest looking to the universities uh, online education portals where you can go get a you know accreditation for a, a well-developed program. Um, these are valuable, but the science of cannabinoids is one thing. Learning how to navigate the system, filling in a form, how to submit, somebody taking you that—that's something that's very difficult to teach. And until someone's done it once, um, it's and they realize that it can be done. And I, I, I don't have experience with this, but I think it, it's a it's a, a process of of experience rather than pure education that also has to happen. And as that begins to be uh, implemented and people have more experience. Doctors then talk to each other and say, I did it for my patient and you should try it because it really works. That's very, very powerful education. Word of mouth. And the question from the gentleman at the yes. back. Yes, hi. Uh, an open question to the panel. Um, do you see any uh, barriers to uh, a diversion um, of, the, of the markets of cannabis such that uh, hemp and low THC strains um, are available off the shelf? Excuse me. <coughs> Um, and THC-containing strains are, remain in the, the ODC's uh, control. Ian. I think this is a very, first. very good point. And if we look at the sort of products that are available over the counter in much of America and in pharmacies, you can get hold of a nutraceutical-style product, maybe with 15 milligrams of uh, CBD and a bunch of other terpenes and cannabinoids in it. There is no a priori reason to doubt that that will be a harmful product. There's uh, also no reason to suggest that it will have any efficacy <laughs> uh, because the studies haven't been done yet. But certainly there's a lot of anecdotal reports, a lot of people using CBD products at around that dose range who swear that it does them a world of good in terms of aches and pains and grumbles and insomnia and overall mood. We'd love to see uh, such nutraceutical hemp products available OTC, and that might go a long way towards addressing issues of access and also issues of cost, because these will be able to mm. be delivered at very low cost, and will give people an opportunity, a low-risk opportunity, to try low doses of CBD for various complaints. I, I think it's a winner, and it's certainly something that we're looking at, and as John will tell you, Anyone in this country is free to make a rescheduling application mm. with the TGA. So, as Ian said, uh, any individual or organisation can apply for something to go from prescription to over-counter. Uh, 
when it comes to prescription, the doses of cannabidiol, CBD, used in, these, in epileptic kitties, where in some cases it's been remarkably effective, in other cases not so, are, are very high. That's one of the reasons behind the cost, although I disagree with Ian's figures about cost, but certainly it's much higher for these kids because they're just having to take so much. At those very high doses, those epileptic kids have quite a range of side effects, uh, so much so that about, sadly, a third have to discontinue taking the cannabidiol because of side effects. Ian's mentioned the possibility of low-dose products becoming over-counter. Well, uh, again, uh, that's a possibility, and uh, a company, uh, an academic organisation or an individual could apply. It goes to a ministerially appointed committee of experts to advise. It goes out to public consultation. Uh, and then after another meeting, a decision's made. But uh, uh, it's quite possible that someone or some organisation may apply in the next couple of years for low-dose products. As Ian said, the evidence for efficacy of these low-dose, some anecdotal reports, but I think you'd agree there's, there's a limited amount of, of information about low-dose cannabidiol products. Uh, so, so maybe, Mark, you mm. could respond. Sorry, mm. we're almost out of time, so we're in fact two minutes over already. So just, um, Mark, do you want to comment quickly on how that sort of... Because you have a, that access to low-dose products, in fact, low-dose to any access to any products is freely available in Canada. Do you think there's advantages to that sort of model? So, so, um, I, I, the correction is that it's not. Right okay. now, all cannabinoids are scheduled. Mm. They were taken out of the Narcotic Control Act and put into the Cannabis Act. So they're all, they all sit there now. There is consideration to taking CBD out of that and making mm. it, because of its low risk of abuse, because of its relatively safe uh, safety profile, um, it's being considered as, as, as a natural health product, but it, people still have to make claim or make submissions to the quality of the, of the manufacturer, as well as regulation around what you can say about it. So it's one thing to sell CBD and not say anything. It's another thing to say CBD for the treatment of inflammation or for insomnia. You need some data to support those claims. It's less strong than it would be for a pharmaceutical product. I think we'll see that happen in Canada in the next year or so. And Teresa, do you have any comments on uh, how that might play out for patients in Australia? Well, the reality is that the, the, the low um, THC um, products, which we, we call hemp here, can be CBD rich. And, and CBD itself is, is still a Schedule Four medicine here. Um, and, and anything that isn't um, greater than 98% purity of, of CBD is actually um, a Schedule 9 medicine unless it's for therapeutic use. So you can't use a CBD-rich hemp oil at the moment in, in Australia unless it's for therapeutic use. And if it's for therapeutic use, it's, it has to go through this convoluted scheme that, that we're operating under now. If it's for non-medicinal purposes, it's prohibited altogether at the moment. So we've got this dilemma where we've got uh, this this uh, inconsistent process with some global markets allowing CBD-rich products um, as hemp oil products that can be for topical use and non-medicinal use, but we've at the moment outlawed it altogether in this country. So I think we need to rethink that, particularly if the World Health Organization comes back with a final report that says that CBD-rich product have very low abuse potential. Mm. Or oh, very, very low. Mm. Almost none. Mm. All right, so 
I'm going to call it a night. Thank, please thank our panel for a fascinating discussion and thank all of you. Audience questions are fabulous. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.